Well, howdy, Enon. It's good to see you today. My name is Luke. I am a, uh, I've been the teacher this weekend, actually along with my wife, and I'm a slightly less talented version of my wife, or less talented teacher than my wife. If you've been in women's ministry, you've probably heard my, my wife communicate, and uh, again, I'm just, it's, it's probably downhill. So anyway, just want to set, uh, you know, the bar at the right place. If you have a Bible, go to John chapter 21, John chapter 21. Man, it's been a uh, great weekend. Dinao has been, uh, man, it's just blown me away. I really do appreciate your church's kindness. Uh, I genuinely mean it. It's one of the kindest congregations uh, that I've ever interacted with. My wife told me that before we came, and I wanted to see it for myself. I truly believe it. So thank you for your kindness that you've shown us. Um, you know, one of the weird things, well, let me say this too. If you're a guest or visitor, please do not judge today's sermon based on my teaching, right? Guest and visitors, QB1 is on the bench. He'll be back next week for a discipleship series. So make sure you come back next week, all right? Fair enough. Now let me dive in. Um, as a pastor, one of the, I feel like one of the saddest moments that I feel like I have to deal with as a pastor is you have to hear about people's um, used to's, Right? It's their, you know, spiritual used to statements. I was in a, uh, getting a haircut, in the chair, the girl's talking, and uh, she finds out I'm a pastor. Now, usually I'm, I'm, I'm like, I try to be covert about that fact that I'm a pastor because it really changes things uh, if I don't really know a person. Like, it make them, they make them feel awkward. So I, I hold back. Well, she eventually asked me what I do, and I said, okay, I'm a pastor. And, and all of a sudden, she begins to, like, pour out her uh, used to statements, really sad used to statements. She says, well, you know, I, I, I used to go to church. I, I used to have like a youth group that I was a part of. I, I used to know the pastor at so-and-so. I used to have community. I used to read my Bible. I used to pray. I, and she went on and on about her used to's. And that's one of the things I feel like with my job. I, I oftentimes am just a listener of people's used tos, of, of the fact that they had some like spiritual health and they had some spiritual highlights, but they're all kind of living in the rearview mirror and there's, there's nothing really happening in their spiritual life today. And in fact, there's probably something that's holding them up and kind of paralyzing them, leaving them in this current place of, of either wandering or drift. Um, Oftentimes I feel like one of the primary reasons in which you uh, have a person that's kind of existing in this used to reality is because they don't really know what to do with a, uh, their sin. They don't know how to move past it, don't know how to, to deal with it. I mean, there's, there's, get me, don't get me wrong, there are a few times when I hear people's spiritual used to statements and they are uh, arrogant about it or they're prideful, they kind of boast. I, I mean, I used to do that stuff, but I don't do that anymore. Like they've graduated beyond spirituality or beyond church, right? And that usually is an indication that there's a, like a religious trauma in their past, right? They had some, uh, a moment in fundamentalism or legalism. They really just missed out on the real gospel and a true Jesus, in my opinion. But for the most part, it's, like, it's, it's shame that causes people to live stalled, and frozen, paralyzed with all of, the, again, their spiritual victories in their past. Um, John 21 is a text, is an incredible tool, I believe, that helps us know what we should do if we are stalled 
if we get locked up, if we don't know what to do, right? How do we respond when there's a spiritual failure or a compromise? We strayed in some way and we kind of, we, we don't know how to deal with our shame. We don't know how to get kind of our feet underneath us and begin to walk again with Christ. In fact, in John 21, we look at the life of Peter and we begin to realize that Peter had a major spiritual disruption in his life and he had the potential, I feel like, to forever stall him out. But uh, there was something really beautiful that Jesus did to intersect with his life again that would cause him, I believe, to to start moving again. So let's go ahead and look at John chapter 21. Now it says this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. Now, Jesus has been revealing himself over and over again. This is another time in which he's kind of revealing himself after the cross, right? So he reveals himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, listen, I'm going fishing, right? He's an Alabama boy for sure, right? And they said, hey man, we're going to go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children... Do you have any fish? Now, we're going to come back to that statement. If you have a physical Bible, you may underline it. And they answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, right, this is John, therefore said to Peter, man, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a boat, and they dragged the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and the fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. 153. Someone counted, right? This is one of the reasons why I trust the Bible. Little details like this, right? This doesn't advance the narrative. And again, if you were trying to manipulate humanity and trying to create a, a, a fictional story that everyone's going to like believe, right? Why in the world would you like get so detailed? 153. Now, this is an eyewitness account. I was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, there was 153. Okay. And, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. That's key. That was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Right? I kind of think you're Jesus. You kind of look like Jesus. But there may be some hesitation. Right? Um, Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. And they, none of them asked who you are. Jesus came, took the bread, and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was, how, this was now the, the third time. Hear me, third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, Well, tend my lamb, or sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to them, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to them, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you, carry you where you do not want to go. And he said to show this by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now again, let me give you a, the context, right? Every text has a context. If text isn't treated with the context, it's a pretext for a proof text. It's really dangerous for a spiritual life. So the context is this. The backstory to this story is the crucifixion. Jesus has died, but he rose again. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to be buried, and then three days later, I'm going to rise. Sure enough, it's happened. And then after the crucifixion, there is about a 40-day period where Jesus kind of exists on earth, and he's showing up, talking to people, and basically saying, like, I'm here, I did it. (laughs) He's kind of continuing to probably stir the faith and strengthen the faith of certain people, trying to make sure that they know, like, I really did do the things that I said I was going to do. I really am the Son of God. And not because, again, they had no faith, but probably it's it's a faith-strengthening strategy of Jesus before he departs this world and he sends out his disciples to become, and again, those first church builders and world changers. So he's, again, stirring their faith. He's doing it. Look, I'm here. But, but... What we know, though, is that uh, in this moment, Jesus has turned his attention to Peter. Because Peter, there's a major failure in his story, right? In in Jesus' final moments, Peter has his worst moment. In the the final moments of of Jesus, right, in that passion moment when Jesus is being uh, put through a mock trial and he's in this process of being killed, right, Peter turns his back. Peter betrays, right? Leader of the pack is, in fact, kind of walking away. The the Peter, the rock, becomes, what, uh, the coward. I mean, (laughs) twice it was the little girl that asked him, do you know who Jesus is? You know the story? Oh, you know him? You're one of, you're one of his disciples? No, no, no I, I, don't, I don't know that guy. Peter denies Christ. And now we have this moment where, again, uh, uh, Jesus is going to, he's going to get close to Peter. going to begin to do a work on Peter. Now, uh, Jesus is showing up, uh, and he's on the shoreline. And the men are fishing. And then what does Jesus say to the men while they're fishing? He says, children... Do you have any fish? Children, do you have any fish? Uh, It's verse 5, part B of the verse. Children, do you have any fish? Now, uh, this would be like him calling them little boys, right? He's like, hey, mom, boys, what you doing? Boys, do you have any fish? Now, uh, I like to like, like assume the best about the text maybe or give benefit of doubt that again, this is like a very gracious moment for Jesus towards these men, right? That this is like familial or kind kind of a language, but it really isn't. Like in First in John, I love First John, uh, we know that uh, John takes a kind of a grandpa style when he approaches the saints, and he says like, my little children on a regular basis. In First John chapter 2, verse, you may know this text, I love it. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ, uh, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is like endearing, it's kind. Little children, right? He's, he's trying to nurture them, trying to protect them. What I, what I want you to know is this is not the way in which Jesus is talking to the disciples right now. You're like, what? 
he's, he's pointing out the fact that they are operating like boys. They're operating with spiritual immaturity or from spiritual immaturity. They've, in fact, they've, they've abandoned the thing that they've called them to, right? Jesus said, I want you to be fishers of men. They've walked away from being fishers of men and they've just retreated to just being fishers of fish. Boys, what are you doing? Right? It's not necessarily kind. He's trying to get their attention. Like, listen, you're acting like kids, right? You're not acting like men. I called men. I give you a purpose. We traded vocation for mission, right? Now, I want you to know, again, there can be an intersection of vocation and mission, right? You can be fishing for fish and fishing for, uh, for men at the same time, right? But he's like, man, I've called you to do something else. Why have you gone back here? Now, some people get really, I feel like, dramatic about this. And they interpret it like this is like apostasy, right? They've, they've completely abandoned Christian faith. They've completely abandoned it. I don't think so. Because, you know, faith is, it's, it's dynamic and not static. Right? There's some ebb and flow to our faith. There's moments where our faith is really strong, very vibrant. We have great confidence. In it. There's moments when it weakens it. Uh, we have a little hesitation about it, right? There's, there's an ebb and flow. So I think that this is a, a low moment in their faith, but I don't think it's a faithless or an absence of faith in, in their life right now. It's just the spiritual journey that they're on, and they've kind of they've, they've slowed their pace just a little bit. Now Jesus is trying to, to get them going again. He's calling them to be reminded of their purpose. Little boys, now I talk to men real regularly uh, in our church, real regularly and very directly. And one of the things I feel like is so very common when I talk to men in our church is that many men, I feel like, are hesitant to be completely obedient to the teachings of Jesus, to really follow the call of Christ, because they believe to follow the call of Christ is essentially to walk away from excitement and to walk away from adventure. And and that's uh, the farthest thing from the truth. Right? These men have been called to a gospel adventure. And listen, every single man in this room ought to know that, again, the call of Christ is a call that is dripping with adventure, dripping with excitement. It is full of energy. You're not making a sacrifice. You're, you're trading for something that's much more glorious. And men are like, nah, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to live my life for the weekend, live it for some drinks, live it for some fun, live for some toys in the garage. Listen, you're selling yourself short. Live on purpose. It's a glorious adventure. These men knew it. They've been walking with Jesus, living in public ministry for three years. And the books of Acts continues to tell us and continues to remind us over and over again. This is a glorious adventure to live on purpose with Christ. He's given us a mission. If you are a believer in this room, you have been given a mission. Do not just settle for vocation. Right? Use your vocation and leverage your vocation. But leverage it for the glory of God. Live on mission for Christ. He says, I want you guys to be fishers of, of men. Now... What's really interesting, the longest time I've, I've studied this text, John 21, and it wasn't until maybe like in recent years that I began to realize that really John 21 in many ways mirrors Luke 5. Did you know this? I, I, I didn't. I, I can't remember what I was reading. It was like some book, some commentary. But there's, you, there's a similar experience that takes place with Jesus, uh, between Jesus and Peter, Luke 5 and John 21. Now, let me show you, Okay. Uh, this is Luke 5, verses 4 through 8. It says, And when he had finished speaking, this is Jesus, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. 
And he says, but at your word, I'm going to let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came, they filled both of the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, if you didn't catch it already, like... Uh, Luke 5 is the moment in which Jesus, or sorry, Peter begins to see that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Like probably uh, that Peter had been aware of Jesus and had probably been present to some of the teachings of Jesus, but yet not had decided that, again, Jesus was who he said he was. He had not decided to actually follow and give himself to Christ. But now in Luke chapter 5, it's a moment which then Jesus reveals himself to Peter like he's revealing himself in John 21. And he's showing him who he truly is. Let me show you the similarities between Luke 5 and John 21. First of all, it's the Sea of Galilee. It's the same body of water that these guys are fishing on. <laughs> They're, uh, both in Luke 5 and 21, it was a bad fishing day. Because it says at the end of their day, they had nothing to show. It's another text, right, both in Luke 5 and John 21, where the carpenter becomes the fishing expert. That uh, there's another moment in which uh, both of these chapters, there's a large catch, too big for one boat. And then, again, this is the times in which Peter recognized who Jesus really was. Here's a thought for for you guys. Um, What triggers Peter, both in Luke 5 and in John 21, that this is Jesus, the Son of God? Think about it. What triggers it? Abundance triggers it. It triggers it. Abundance reality. Both times, nets overflowing, biggest catch of their entire life, abundance position, right? It, it, I imagine that in John 21, when they all of a sudden the, the nets are full, it's overflowing, they have to get some guys, help me, get, we got to get this catch into shore, right? Again, he's like, the only other time in my entire life when I've been fishing and I've had this type of situation happen was when, it's three years ago, when, when Jesus was in the boat. Abundance is what triggers Jesus. And I think that as a believer in Jesus Christ, this isn't like health and wealth gospel, but I do truly believe that, again, that we can look for God when we find abundance. And I believe that God does operate by providing blessings upon his children where he pours out in such a way that it's more than we can contain. He gives us abundance realities. Many of us have experienced the abundance of God in so many different uh, facets of our life. Abundance is indication to Peter that he's just intersected with the divine. This defies the natural laws. This is supernatural now. God is here. Abundance. I think of Psalm 23. My wife talked about it this weekend. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? My cup over, right? My, my cup overflows. And David knew, right, that, the, that this is how God operates, in abundance, more than enough. He's stretching the limits. I think that we should live with a sense of expectation that God is going to provide a sense of abundance for life. Not, I'm not saying, like, there's going to be abundance of money, right, an abundance of toys. But, again, there is an abundance of influence, abundance of joy, abundance of peace, abundance in family, abundance in community. There's an abundance reality I believe we should all expect. Now, there are some differences, though, between Luke 5 and, and John 21. 
They're not identical. They're parallel. And there's some similarities. Uh, but let's look at now the difference. Let's do a little Bible work, okay? The first one is this. Difference number one, in Luke 5, verse 8, Peter says, depart from me. But yet in John chapter 21, he threw himself into the sea. See, Luke 5, um, chapter 8, uh, or, sorry, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, he wants to get away from Jesus. And in John chapter 21, he can't wait to get close to Jesus. He's like, man, I can't wait for this boat to get, clo- to get closer, to get in. And so I'm just going to dive in. I-, I can swim faster than you guys can right now. So I got to get to Christ. It's an indication that there's now a relationship. When he wants to get away from them in Luke 5 because there isn't a relationship. There's an unlikeness. There's a kind of a fear that comes because, listen, I've now just recognized that this guy is God and he's a holy God and he's so unlike me and I'm terrified. He says, depart. Can you get away from me? You don't feel safe. Uh, this guy, Rudolf Ott, he actually is he's German, not a Christian, German uh, philosopher. He talks about... Uh, uh, this experience in Luke chapter 5, and he actually talks about it and puts a title on it, and he calls it numinous awe. That's a big, you know, $5 word, right? Uh, numinous awe. And he says, this is what he documented, that this happened, he said it only happens in Christian faith that he could see. And it's where two people, where it's a person experiencing two conflicting emotions simultaneous. That one, they're experiencing terror, but also they're experiencing captivation. That they are terrified in the fact that, again, God is, that this guy is God and he's unlike me and he's holy, but also I want to get close. And if you look at Luke chapter 5, it's what happens. Peter says, depart from me, I, I'm an unclean man, but then he says, I'm going to follow you. It's like, whoa, whoa, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You should get away, but yet you follow, right? Because both probably are true in the heart of Peter. I just had an encounter with a holy God. Who am I? But also, man, I got to get close. I got to know you more. All right, let's keep going. Um, Difference number two in the text, right? In Luke chapter 5, it says the nets were breaking. And in John chapter 21, the nets are not breaking, right? It's, I, I believe it may be the way in which God's trying to communicate that, again, as you are now fishing for men, you won't believe the catch you're going to get. As the church expands, as people respond, as you have these kind of like glorious moments where the kingdom continues to build, right? He says, you're not going to believe the amount of people, the quantity of people that are going to respond to the message of the cross. But guess what? There's going to be something that contains it, this glorious thing called the church. And the walls will continue to grow. The church will continue to expand. They'll continue to be containers for these people to exist in, right? This is going to be a beautiful thing, right? Difference number three in the text, Jesus was in the boat in Luke 5, and Jesus is on the shore in John 21. And again, this is conjecture. This is a perhaps, only a perhaps. But perhaps what Jesus is trying to communicate and what he's trying to signify to the disciples is that they were going to experiencing miracles without being in proximity to the physical Jesus. Like up until this moment, right, all of the miracles were done by Jesus. Or they had at least been in proximity to Jesus, the physical Jesus, right? And now as he's kind of preparing them, 
He's kind of stirring their faith to send them out, to launch them into the world for the advancing of the church and the building of the kingdom. Right? He's getting ready. He says, listen, the things that you've seen with me for the last three years, guess what? You're going to continue to see these. And although you may not be able to look at me physically, right, I will be with you. My spirit will be in you. You can expect the same type of power. You can expect the same type of miracles. I think that we should, a church, we should wait and live in anticipation of the miraculous, that God's still doing miracles in our midst. Then what happens next in the text? Uh, Peter jumps out of the boat, swims ashore, and then Peter and Jesus have a moment. They have a moment over breakfast, right? It says, like, Jesus is prepared to have a conversation, right? There's, it says that the coals were, had already been started. And the, so the coals are there, and they're waiting to eat, and they're going to have breakfast, and Jesus is doing something. You may not see what he's doing, but he's, he's preparing to eat a meal with Peter, the betrayer. He's, he's I, I believe, using the, the tool of a uh, shared meal, right? There's a power in a shared, shared meal, right? To have someone at your table, to look at them in the eyes, to give them a sense of gospel hospitality, right? There's, there's a power in that kind of closeness, but you know what I know for me is any, every time I have a shared meal, I only share meals with my friends. I don't share meals with my enemies. And even though Peter deserves to be treated like an enemy, he is being treated like a friend. Let's eat together. You, you still want to eat with me? After what I said and after what I did? And then they have this moment. It's, like a, it's a public-private moment. You with me? A public-private moment. Because uh, a lot of times we read John 21 and you think it's like just Jesus and Peter by themselves having this whole, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yeah, I love me. Like, no, you got all these dudes in the boat. All the disciples pull on shore and they're like witnessing it and seeing it too. So again, they're having a conversation and there's a dialogue, but there's an audience. Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yeah, I love me. Do you love me? I was, I think I was reading Ben Stewart, and it was interesting. He was, I don't know if he was talking about himself or he was talking about a member of his church that was reading this exchange in a really unique way. I'd always read it in a very, like, I feel like simple and almost innocent way. But this person, again, that he was, I think, doing ministry with was really hesitant about this text because they believed that Jesus was being cruel towards Peter because he was kind of rubbing it in. But the fact that they go back and forth, he's rubbing Peter's mistakes and his failures in his face. He was saying that it's like, do you love me, Peter? And he says, because it sure doesn't seem like you love me. Do you love me, Peter? Because it doesn't feel like you told me that you, you told everyone you didn't even know me. Do you really love me, Peter? Because I warned you that this moment was going to happen and then you still did it. Do you really love me? Because all it took was a little girl making an accusation for you to deny me and say you didn't even know me. Do you really love me? Because you said you were going to die for me. Then you walked away. Do you love me? I was like, wow. When I, I was like, someone reads that this way? How could someone read that this way? The reason someone might read that way is if they have unaddressed shame in their story unaddressed guilt in their life. Peter's disposition, or sorry, Jesus' disposition towards Peter is not to rub his nose in it. He's trying to mirror 
the repetitive failure of Peter, giving him ample opportunities to kind of have a spiritual do-over. This intersection or this, this repetition is for restoration, right? He's giving him an opportunity to, to repent of his sins, Right? This is an act that's allowing him to, to turn from his, again, probably his worst moment in his spiritual life. I'm giving you an opportunity to, to come back. There's a difference between, you know, willful sin and accidental sin. Accidental sin is where you, like, you have a slip-up moment. Right? We all have slip-up moments. I, have, I oftentimes have them with my three kids, right? They, they, they press me, they irritate me, and then I say something I shouldn't say, and I have to go back to them and say, will you forgive me, Right? And it's an accidental sin. It just something happened. And like, man. But, you know, willful sin is, is deliberate. It's like being fully aware, like, what you're going to do and then still doing it. <laughs> knowing that, again, that this is failure and then still choosing the failure. Knowing that, again, this is a disobedience but still choosing to disobey. Now, when you have an accidental sin, you'll hear sometimes things like this. Well, you know, well that's out of character for him. Right? You, you've met somebody when they're like, man, I don't know what's going on. They had a bad day, I think. That what we just saw, that what we just witnessed, that's out of character for that person. Now, when you do it three times in a row, you're, it's not out of character anymore. Three, three times. No, this is your character. This is highlighting a deficiency in your character. And so here's what I know about uh, repentance, right? The recipe is pretty much the same, but I believe that there is some kind of like uh, usually a, a deeper work, I feel like, to cause people to actually turn, right? Repentance is the act of turning. Sometimes I feel like the, the, the act of repentance can be real simple. It's like, oh, no, confess, repent, move back, and I'm, I'm done. I feel like that sometimes it's really hard to get our soul to come back. Really hard for us to move back. And here's why I believe that Jesus is continuing to say these things for Peter. Is he's trying to get him to to turn back. And he knows that again, as there's been three major moments of willful choice for Peter to deny the Christ. That he's giving him three opportunities in a public setting for him to acknowledge that Jesus is God. For him to say that yes, I do really do love you. So they can move his heart back towards Christ. You know... Uh, the greatness of Peter, in my opinion, is the defenselessness of Peter in this moment. Like Peter, you know, he's loud and he's in charge and right. Uh, he, man, there's so many great stories and great moments in, in Peter's history. But what I think this is probably one of his greatest moments because notice the defenselessness of Peter when he's interacting with Jesus. That there's a dialogue and he's not defending himself. I was working with a guy that had an affair at the church, and uh, he was kind of figuring out. He was asking me his help in, his, in the next steps to rebuild his marriage and rebuild his family and rebuild his spiritual life. And as he was, he's figuring these things out, we, I guess it was a couple weeks later, a couple months later, he said, I realized at the point when I stopped trying to defend my name, that is when I was truly repentant. That my repentance wasn't real while I was trying to self-protect. My repentance wasn't real when I'm trying to justify. And one of the most damning words for a Christian is the conjunction but. And when we start living our lives and we have these sins and we say, well, I lied, but. I mean, I stole, but. I shouldn't have said it, but. It's evidence of a a posture of defense. It's a posture of justification. 
And it's probably an evidence that, again, our fact that our repentance is not real or is at least not complete. And you're like, how do you know this? Why are you talking? I, listen, I speak from experience. Listen, I know this myself. I am the greatest sinner I know. And I know whenever I've used the, those conjunctions, and I've always had a, a pause or hesitation or justification, a defense to an accusation or a rebuke in my life, it usually is an indication that my soul is not truly repentant. It's really not broken over the sin. Jesus says, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You know, Peter could have been uh, living with a used to reality. He could have been the guy that was uh, airing out all of the fact that uh, his spiritual victories were all in the rearview mirror. He could have been the guy that said, you know, I used to be with Jesus. <laughs> he said, I, I, I used to be one of those disciples. You know those disciples? I used to be one of them. Man, I used to teach, I used to preach, I used to be involved, I used to have community. I used to, but he, but he doesn't live with the used tos. And here's what's remarkable about Peter is, listen, it is 50 days after his failure that he preaches at Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved. This is remarkable. 50 days later after this big public failure, this big public denial, that there's a public proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the only way of salvation and 3,000 people respond. That's glorious. That is, at this moment, Peter could have said, like, all of my past spiritual victories are in the past. He could have, but no, because of the goodness of God and the continuing work of the gospel in his life, right, there was a story that was formed in Acts, and we continue to see the spiritual victories and the spiritual accomplishments that would happen because of the faithful ministry of Peter. We serve a good God, and we have a great gospel. Jesus Christ saves us, and he saves us again. He continues to work out uh, a salvation in us. He's continuing to sanctify, sanctify us. And if you're here in this room today and you kind of have something, you have a moment of guilt, there's a moment of shame, there's something that's heavy, there's something that's hard, there's something that stalled you out today, I would love you to remember your first love. You would remember Jesus Christ. You remember that his position towards you is, is open. He's not trying to rub your mistakes in your face. His arms are wide open. He says, come. He wants to restore, he wants to clean you up, and he wants to set you back on mission for his sake. Listen, you don't have to live with the highlight, your spiritual highlights in your past. They can be on your horizon if you again embrace, embrace Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for these students. We thank you for uh, what you've done this weekend, how you've stirred their hearts, how you put a seed of faith in many of them, and that there's like a, a new work that's taking place. God, I pray for those new believers. I pray that they might be surrounded by um, mature saints that would help them figure out the next steps of faith. God, I pray for the saint in this room that is paralyzed because of guilt and shame. They're kind of held up, and they aren't moving anymore. They aren't advancing for your kingdom. God, I pray that they remember, uh, remember Jesus. They would remember the gospel. They would preach it to themselves once again. They would realize that you are perpetually um, cleaning us up, and that you don't stop, you don't limit, you don't ration grace, that you continue to pour that out on us. Father, I pray that that truth would find, their way to, find its way to their mind, find its way into their heart. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us first and loving us most. We pray these things in your name. Amen.